We're in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and there are two parts to this chapter. The first part is Israel as a nation going nowhere for 20 years. Nothing is being accomplished. Nothing is getting better. It's only getting worse. Stagnation. The second part of this chapter is an awesome sight. An entire nation coming back into relationship with the Lord. And they experience more progress, more movement than anybody has seen in 40 years. How do you overcome stagnation and going nowhere, being stuck? Well, you need a mediator to get you back into relationship with God. And after that, nothing is impossible with God. So I'm reading in 1 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So, we have 20 years compressed into two verses. God himself has brought his Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Nobody in Israel pulled a James Bond sort of, we're going to get this thing back, mission impossible thing. God just brought it back himself. He's very capable. And you'd think that would rouse all Israel. It's a miracle. God did this. He can do anything. Yes, God, we're going to follow you. But they don't. They're kind of just stuck. You see in the last verses of chapter 6, the men of Beth Shemesh can't deal with God. They say, who can stand? before this holy Lord God. And so they call up the guys in Kiriath-Jerim and say, you take this thing. We can't even handle this. They get rid of the ark of the presence of the Lord. And they start away safely out of everyone's way so God won't bug them anymore. And they stay like that for 20 years. Can you imagine? Just being in neutral, stuck. Nothing is happening. Stagnant. It's used, that word is used to describe standing water. There's just some puddle. It's got green stuff and bugs in it and... You know, maybe a dog would drink it. You wouldn't. 
here's life grinding on in Israel for 20 years. You know that nothing gets better on its own? That demands power. And Israel doesn't have any power. And what they do is, at the end of verse 2, they lament after the Lord for 20 years. You ever lamented? Mm. <laughs> it's kind of pathetic. They know the Lord's there. He's proved himself. He knows how to take care of himself. And you know that he made the Philistines give in and acknowledge there's a God, we can't see him, but we do not dare fuss with him anymore. We actually have to say, we sinned, we're sorry, please don't hurt us anymore. That's pretty good. And Israel knows they've lost their relationship with the Lord. That's why you sorrow. You have lost something that meant something to you. And there's also remorse in there and guilt. They know that they've done wrong, that they're far away from God. And they kind of want God, and they kind of don't. Isn't that weird? They got their idols still. So they kind of got their idols, and they're kind of lamenting after the Lord. It's kind of like, which way am I going to go? You ever tried to go to that side of the room and that side of the room at the same time? Let's, let's experiment. <laughs> How am I doing? Not so good. See, they're double-minded. Yeah, God, yeah, my idol. But all the idols prove is that they don't have any power to change anything. So I wonder if the people get kind of tired of serving the idols as well. It's like, that's a hassle. Put energy into something that's just <laughs> nothing. And somehow this conviction grows, this powerless existence is our fault. This is on us. It's not God's fault. We've forsaken the Lord. He's righteous. And our misery comes from us. This is our fault. Something like this is happening for 20 years. And finally, Samuel speaks the word of the Lord to all Israel. There in verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. If you return to the Lord, then come back with all your heart. Return to the Lord in love. That's what it means to return. Because this is what it means 
to be with the Lord. You love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And there's no other way to return to the Lord. It's not a matter of saying, okay, I believe in this theological proposition and this theological proposition, and I'm not a liberal Democrat anymore. I am a labor. When you return to the Lord, it's a relationship of love. When you return to the Lord, it's in truth. He says, get rid of these idols. Now these idols, they are vile and worthless because they're lies. They are against the one true living God. These are the gods that keep you weak and depressed. They don't have any power to make life better. These other gods are the enemy. And the people come to this conclusion. These idols have come between us and the only true God. And because of them, we broke our relationship with the Lord. So Samuel is saying, just like you forgot God, and ignored God and left God. Now, get rid of these idols. Forget them. Ignore them. Remove them. Destroy them. And then he says, prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And that means return in knowledge. Return in love. Return in truth and return in knowledge. It says in Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Now that word translated hold fast is the same word used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Be joined. In the older versions, the word is cleave. Cleave to your wife. My pastor asked me, where are you and your wife going to live when you get married? And I said, we're going we're to live in Cleveland. He goes, what? <laughs> Cleveland, man, that's wherever you want it to be. Wherever we're going to live, we are going to cleave together. He goes, that was funny. <laughs> but it's true. That's where you married folk live, hopefully. Cleveland. And that's what God says there in Deuteronomy. Cleave to him. Now, you know, you have to know the person you're married to in order to live with them. 
Have you noticed that? A wife has to know her husband. A husband has to know his wife. You cannot live with that other person in ignorance. It doesn't work. Now, if you don't value your marriage, don't learn anything about the person you're married to. And you know what will happen? You will be alone in your marriage. Because you have to know that person, and you're always learning. You are always going to learn something about that person you're married to you didn't know before. You're laughing. You're going to realize you married mystery person. I'm always finding out about you. New stuff I never knew before. It's only been 34 years, but hey, that way it doesn't get old. It just goes on and on and on. Well, a relationship has to be in knowledge. And a relationship with God is not a mystery because he wrote every aspect out in detail. Nobody has to guess or make it up. Now, you know, us married folk, we're always guessing. Is she going to like this? I don't know. I'm going to try. But God didn't leave us to wonder and grope in the dark. It's so detailed, there's no room to make it up. God has laid it out. This is how you live with me. So everybody can get it. Nobody has to be mystified. How do you live with God? But see, this is what Israel asked. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Because they didn't know you're not even supposed to look at the ark, much less open it up. Who is able to live with this holy Lord God? Someone who knows him. And does what he says and avoids what he says don't do. Then you can live with him. End of verse 3. says, when you return to the Lord with all your hearts and you serve him only, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Hand means power. And the Philistines keep Israel in their power. And they are never going to release Israel from their power. That is never going to happen. Have you noticed? The enemy loves to oppress, will not give up by accident, never gets tired of oppressing. Have you noticed? So if you allow yourself to get into this spot where you're kind of far from the Lord, stuck in neutral, none of this oppression just goes away. Things don't 
magically get better on their own. It just drags on. You get tired, but the oppressor never gets tired. Still as inflexible, as tyrannical as ever. So, the enemy is not going to go away by himself and just decide, oh, well, I'm getting tired of mushing Israel's face into the dirt and kicking them and, ah. So, see, you need power to overpower the enemy and make them let you go. You need God. And Samuel is saying, that freedom that you wanted, that you could never get, he's going to give it to you. He will give it to you as a fruit of relationship. So verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. That is significant. An entire nation causes themselves and says, we're done. All of these idols got to go. We're breaking them down. We're crushing them. We're done. And you know, they have to relearn how do you approach God in the right way. If you're going to serve the Lord, you have to go by what is written. So they have to get back into that. And you know, they do this before God does anything. They're serving the Lord and nothing has changed. The Philistines are still oppressing them. Outwardly, life has not changed one bit. But they say, we are going to serve the Lord. We are going to worship him only. And see, some people want to negotiate with God when they're coming back. They say, okay, I want God to free me up from this thing, and if he doesn't free me up, then I'm not playing. They want to negotiate with God. They want God to roll over and play dead and take care of them, and then they're going to follow the Lord. But you know, God is never going to play like that. If you want to return to the Lord, then you serve him, and you do what somebody who seeks the Lord does. You're not in a position to dictate to God or deal with him. You just come to him, and you serve him, and you say, Lord, have mercy on me. He's going to listen to a humble prayer. And so, verse 5, Samuel says, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now, all of Israel comes together in one spot. Can you imagine what a logistical nightmare that is? How complicated that would be? What a hassle it would be to travel and actually show up in person to a meeting? 
but they do it. Because it's an interesting thing. If you're going to be right with God, then you're going to be right with everyone who is right with God. The two are inevitable. And that demands a meeting. And what you have then is peace with God and peace with one another. Already, that is a tremendous blessing. And Samuel says, I'm going to pray to the Lord for you. Now, he is probably the one guy in Israel who has a relationship with God that is right. And he's the guy who is going to mediate for them. You need a mediator. Otherwise, why is God going to listen to you? Why should he pay you any attention? But when there's somebody there to pray for you, whom God will listen to, then that's going to result in blessing. He's going to listen to a man who is right with him. So then they humble themselves. They draw water out, and they pour it out before the Lord. And what they're saying is, we have gotten ourselves into a spot that we cannot fix. It's humanly impossible. Just like pouring out this water, and it soaks into the ground, there's no way to get that water back again. You know, we could dig up the ground and kind of make some kind of moisture extractor or something, but basically it's a waste of time. It's gone. And that's what they're saying to God. Look at us, God. We have messed things up so bad, we can't fix it. We're coming to you. We're asking you to fix it. And they confess their sins to the Lord. They're confessing their sins to the Lord. They're not avoiding them, minimizing them, ignoring them. They're just saying, we have sinned. And they fast. They make themselves hungry on purpose. It's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. It doesn't feel good. But what they're saying is, our relationship with God is a higher priority than me satisfying myself and nourishing myself. My relationship with God is the most important thing. And then look at the very end of verse 6. Samuel judged them. What that means is he has become the political ruler in Israel. And the people are submitting themselves under the man that God has raised up to be their leader. It's not so much about Samuel as the people are under God. And he has become a leader like a king. Now, we have a situation here that is unique in Scripture. Because Samuel has spoken to the house of Israel as a prophet. 
if you return to the Lord, return with all your heart. He's also like a priest. We're going to see in a few verses. Interceding for the people before God. And he's also like a king. Prophet, priest, and king. There's only one other person in all of Scripture whom God called to do these things. Usually he'd split it up. If a guy was a king, he could be a prophet but not a priest. You see that with King Uzziah. When he tried to burn incense to the Lord in the temple as a priest, the Lord made him a leper. Don't do that. Prophets didn't rule. Kings don't be priests and so forth. But this is unique. As the nation comes back, there is a prophet and a priest, and he's the ruler in Israel right now. So, verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hand of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, Israel isn't trying to be a military threat to anybody. They're just coming to church. And you can bet nobody came with a sword, a spear, a helmet, a shield. You never know, Ma. I might need to battle my way out of the parking lot. Church and all, you know. They just showed up. And the Philistines get word of some kind of massing of Israel together. And they go, what? Because unity means 
power to resist. The Philistines don't want it. They like Israel weak, divided, demoralized, helpless, push their face a little more down in the mud. That's the way I like you. I love you. Just like that, don't change. They don't like this getting together stuff. So they decide this is war. We're going to attack. Now, can you imagine that it would be dangerous and even deadly to go to church? Don't you think this is relevant? Because that's the fear nowadays. If I go to church, I could die. And you find people just going, ah, it's safer, stay at home. I'll just watch it on the live stream. Everything's cool. But what I think is amazing here is Israel's reaction in verse 8. Don't stop praying for us that the Lord our God may save us. Now that's fabulous. None of this, I told you, I told you not to go to church. It's not safe. We should have stayed home. You know, they're scared, and anybody would be. Not poo-pooing that. But you know, they say to Samuel, don't stop praying for us. They are really trusting in God to save them right now. And it doesn't look good. Nobody's armed. The Philistines are. As far as they know, either God saves us or we're dead. Now here's the wonderful thing. You don't get a miracle until you need one. Because God does not fake save anybody. You have to be in a real jam. Their lives are really in danger, but they're going to get this miracle. Samuel offers a suckling lamb. And you think, what? This is at least a week old, but a, a, just a little helpless lamb, and Samuel offers it up. This is not a very impressive offering, do you think? Don't you think a bull would have been a better offering for the nation? Or maybe 10 or 15? Something to move God, you know. Wow, big sacrifice, got to show up. No, it's just this little suckling lamb. And God help us. We are this lamb. We are this helpless lamb. You know, this is one of the things that we thought was so interesting on Friday night, looking at Jonah. Jonah is three days, three nights, in the stomach of a great fish, and he says, just before I lost consciousness, I remembered the Lord and I prayed. And his prayer was something like, eh. it says, my prayer came into your ears in your holy temple. That's pretty good from way down there, inside, being a little digested. Barely conscious, 
And God hears that prayers, and he says to the fish, it's time you can expectorate him. And this is not fabulous, impressive, but they're saying, God, we're helpless. Now, nothing could be more weak and helpless than this. We're about to die. They're about to fall upon us and slice us to bits. And we're going to pray and offer up this little lamb. And that's going to fix everything. Do you believe that? They do. Now, You know, if you see these skies like you see in the films where it becomes very dark and threatening and then you have thunder and lightning, you expect that. And I think, what would happen if it was a clear blue sky and all of a sudden it starts thundering? Wouldn't that be weird? It doesn't say that it was stormy. But it thunders so loud, so often, the Philistines are freaked out. And that's enough to make them run. Now, I think in a situation like this, to have your shield and your armor and everything while you're running is a bit of a liability. You can't run as fast. And your armor doesn't protect your backside. So if you're Israel who's now chasing these guys, and you pick up a rock, and you throw it at the guy, and it hits him, and he trips and he goes down, and 10 or 15 of you run on him and trample him, that's pretty effective. And of course, if somebody stops and grabs that sword and grabs that shield, and I'll take that helmet, you don't need it anymore, all of a sudden you got weapons. You can start whacking away. So all these unarmed Israelites start chasing these armed Philistines and they wipe them out. Isn't that crazy? But see, God can do stuff like that. And they push the Philistines back over the borders. They recover cities that they lost. All the things they wanted to get and never could. All the days of Samuel, the Philistines stay away. Now, this is the promise of God of Leviticus 26. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. The vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. God says, all you got to do is be in right relationship with me, 
and I'll take care of everything else. Everything in your life comes out of this relationship. So look at verse 12. Samuel takes this stone, puts it in the ground, calls it Ebenezer. And he says, the Lord has helped us this far. And the significance is this. You remember when Israel was defeated? They lost 30,000 men and the Ark of the Covenant. It was in Ebenezer. Only it wasn't called that yet. That was 20 years ago. And now, in the very same spot, they have victory over the Philistines. They're back in relationship. And God is fighting for them. They've come a long way. And so now, 20 years later, Samuel puts that stone there as a memorial and he says, the Lord is our rock of help. That's Ebenezer. He is our rock of help. So, this is revival. This is what revival looks like. And you might ask yourself, do I need revival today? And only you know for sure. Because when I go to church, if anybody asks me how I'm doing, I always say, doing great. How are you doing? And then you say, I'm doing great. That's great. We're all doing great. But you know, and I know, when I'm avoiding him, when my relationship with God is not so good. And I've noticed, as it shows here, that when your relationship with the Lord is messed up, you don't go anywhere. You have no traction. And life grinds on. You get that. Everybody has been through this. I know this is true. And the problem is a divided heart. Sort of want the Lord, sort of don't want the Lord. You get out of the groove of seeking the Lord with everything you've got. You know what? A godly habit is a good habit. But things like pandemics blow us out of good habits because our life gets disturbed. And then we're, we lack the power to develop good habits. Like, I'm going to be together with the body. It's really easy to let that slide. It doesn't take much. Well, you know what? This can go on indefinitely. This no traction, stagnation stuff can go on for 20 years, as long as you want. So, you know, the word of the Lord today is, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He's always saying that. So then you focus on relationship. If you return to the Lord, return with all your heart. This is not about clean up your life and be perfect. People get that in their head and say, when I get my life cleaned up, then I'll do these things. But that will never happen. 
So we got to be careful about this, not without the Lord. You know what he's really wanting? He wants our hearts. And so that's where we start. We seek the Lord and we say, you know, I want to love you with all my heart, but I'm not doing so good. So then you go to the mediator. The Lord has a mediator to help you stay in touch. And he's so familiar. He's a lot like Samuel. Miraculous birth, a servant to God from the womb, the only other prophet, priest, and king in the whole Bible. And see, he's able to get us back in relationship, always. And he is our rock of help. This is what I was thinking about way after I had studied all this, and I was praying and thinking about, Jesus said, if you hear my words and you do them, it'll be like a man building his house on bedrock. No matter what happens, that house is going to stand. And what I think is interesting is, again, Ebenezer is a location. You go to that place, there's a rock. But then you leave that place. You leave that rock. But with us, our lives are being built on a solid rock. Wherever we go, that rock of help in Jesus is with us. We're always going to have that solid ground to step on. So here's what we want to do. We just want to be in relationship with God through Jesus. And any time we get on the outs, we don't want to harden our hearts. We want to just come back and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and humble ourselves greatly before him. And then he's going to put it back together again. Don't let anything come between you and him. Let's pray. We do want to thank you and praise you, Heavenly Father, for this miracle that you would want to help us, that you stand ready and calling and waiting. Like, why in the world should you do that? Except that you have compassion on us and that you are gracious toward us. And so we trust you this morning. We praise you that you are able to keep us in our relationship with you. We don't have to be like lost sheep, but you draw us near and keep us. And again, we want to pray for the situations that we're in right now, where we need your help. 
The issues are too much for us. And we don't have what it takes. And yet you, Lord, you're the fountain of living waters. You give eternal life in Jesus. And whoever is born of God overcomes this world. So we want to trust in Jesus right now. Thank you for being our rock of help. In Jesus' name, amen.